Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Thursday, July 26, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know how they say a hanging concentrates the mind? I guess people witnessing the hanging from the outside say that. Well, I would say the modern version of this is it takes a gigantic stock dip to clarify your opinion on a tech company. Because yesterday, Facebook announced that revenue had missed analyst estimates. It's going to grow by 13.2 billion. They had estimated 13.1 billion. Okay. So 0.1 billion is $100 million. That's how much they missed earning estimates by. And the stock was punished to the tune of about $120 million. How does this make sense? Well, I'll tell you it's because it's not just that one time missing estimates. Facebook is now saying that revenue is going to grow a little more slowly in the future. And I'm really concerned. I'm worried that Zuckerberg's going to have to switch to the miracle whip after this one. Now, If you ask me, Mike, what do you think of Facebook? In the abstract, I'd be ambivalent. I'd say, don't love Facebook. Don't love actually interacting on Facebook. Yeah, I know it has potential, but it also has shown that it can sow the seeds to great chaos. So a little of this, a little of that. Yet when I heard it plunged 20%, I got to tell you, I had this immediate visceral reaction. It went sort of like this. (laughs) Part of it, is that I don't right now, I may be wrong, but I really don't think real people are losing jobs based on this. I think uh, all the billionaires have their billions locked in. I mean, somewhere it just has to be that someone who is a billionaire on paper yesterday is now a 900 millionaire. That happens. But I kind of like this. If you told me, however, and I'm going to contrast it with Google, if you told me that Google plunged, I really don't think I'd feel as gleeful. Oh, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't really care either way. They got enough money too, but I wouldn't have what the Germans call Google schadenfreude. Here's a rule of thumb. When I am on the uh, the internet and I interact with a site and that site tells me, how about we inject a little Facebook in your life? I get a little angry. Like, Would you like to sign in via Facebook? No. Get that Facebook away from me. But when Google is denied to me, I want my Google back, right? So I'm on this one web browser, I can't shake it, that says it's powered by Google, but it seems to just have worse results than Google. It's like a fake Google, it has some Google colors, but it just gives me the worst results than Google would. Or sometimes you open an address in an app, and it goes to open the Apple Maps instead of the Google Maps. I want the Google Maps. So this is just a way of internally calibrating what I think of the tech sites that rule our lives. If you ask me, here, have some Facebook, I say, but if you say, we're going to take away your Google, I also say, by the way, can you help me with the, this is really the worst way to get some uh, IT advice, but I don't understand why my Chrome browser or whatever it is has been hijacked by this off-brand Google. It's like with cars, how a Firebird had the Chevy Camaro engine, but with a slightly different but worse body. Why not just buy a Chevy Camaro? I just want the Google. I don't want the search powered by Google so that the sixth result is the actual first result on Google and the first five results misunderstand what I'm asking for. Anyway, what I did today was I Googled the word Facebook and the first result said Facebook stock down 20%. And the second result was my actual Facebook page. And I got to say, I got a lot more pleasure out of the first result. On the show today, I spiel about the next great American export 
the claim of fake news. That's the export. But first, Imran Khan is set to become Pakistan's prime minister. It is a tough job, but some former cricket-playing international celebrity turned devout Muslim has apparently got to do it. As founder of the PTI party, Khan has been in politics for decades. And you know that in Pakistan, you have more to worry about than the other political parties. You have, of course, have constituencies like the military and specifically the ISI, which is the Pakistani version of the CIA, only it's much more powerful within the country itself. So luckily, to sort this all out, we have expert Alyssa Ayers, former State Department Pakistan hand, and she's up next. Cricket legend Imran Khan has declared himself the victor of uh, the Pakistani elections. A lot of, so many asterisks. I could spend the whole segment on that, including the fact that other parties uh, seem to be disputing the election. Not all the vote has been counted, but I want to talk about what this means and what this could mean for Pakistan, for U.S.-Pakistani relations, for Pakistani-Indian relations. Alyssa Ayers is a senior fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. She's a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia. A lot of titles, but you deserve it, Alyssa. Well, thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> yeah. Happy to join. So I know he's, uh, I know Khan is a sportsman, and I know he's a somewhat recent convert to strict adherence to Islam. He was quite the playboy in London a few years ago. But tell me about him and what he was campaigning on. Right. Well, uh, let me just back up slightly mm-hmm. to note that uh, I, I think the image of him as this international sports playboy, this seems to be the image of him that's predominantly in the UK press because that's how they know him. He went to Oxford. It's yeah. a cricketing cricketing world image. But he hasn't been that person for a couple decades. You know, his return to Pakistan, he was out of cricket. He became very focused on um, philanthropy, created a hospital named after his mother, became very focused on welfare and doing good in Pakistan and then entered politics and created this new party back in 1996. So he's been in politics for a long time at this point. This is the first election that he's had this type of success. This is also within the last year or so, the, uh, he has become much more religious. He recently married somebody who is known to be a kind of Sufi mystic. So there's a very interesting transformation of the man as, as he has continued on his own path uh, within Pakistan. Pakistani's political environment. And what's his platform? Well, he's had a few different platforms, but let's just say that he has not been pro-America. Let me start with that. And that's one of the reasons I am a little bit concerned to see where he heads as the leader of Pakistan's next government. You know, he campaigned most prominently on the issue of Mm anti-corruption. And I don't think it would surprise anybody to know that Pakistan has a lot of problems of corruption. The most recent prime minister of Pakistan, Nawaz Sharif, is now in jail on charges of corruption. 
and personal enrichment. He was, uh, in fact, brought down by documents that were released in the Panama Papers file. But the anti-corruption charge against Nawaz Sharif, the former prime minister, was something that Imran Khan had really taken to the streets in a big way over the course of the last couple of years. So he's made anti-corruption a major platform. Let me say this. I, I totally support anti-corruption. I don't want to be misunderstood on this, but it seems <laughs> as if That's good. yeah, it, it seems Obama as if administration <laughs> official on the record exactly. being against I corruption. I do not want any misunderstanding <laughs> on that front. But it does seem, at least from this vantage point, that Imran Khan's focus is only on anti-corruption when it comes to finding ways to uh, uh, bring down political opponents. So right. he doesn't seem particularly concerned about corruption issues if it involves the Pakistani military. Uh, let's see if this becomes a broader platform. Uh, in his speech today, he talked about the importance of governance and uh, human development and uplifting uh, Pakistan from poverty. This is a country that has human development indicators that are below those of Bangladesh. It has not invested the way it should in education and public health. But part of that problem also has to do with an overwhelming, what many have called overweening uh, military. So if you devote too much to the defense budget and not enough to what else you can do to help your own civilian population, to help grow your infrastructure, to help create a better economy, well, that's a problem too. Mm -hmm. And so so the reason I flag that issue as well is because who knows what else is happening behind the scenes with the way defense funds are allocated. I certainly don't know. These budgets are not made public. It is my understanding that Pakistan's members of their own national assembly don't have access to the defense budget. So that's a, a real challenge. But so far, his anti-corruption focus has really been narrowly directed at bringing down Nawaz Sharif. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Imran Khan is um, anti or at least not pro-U.S. How pro-U.S. can a popularly elected politician in Pakistan be? Well, you know, U.S.-Pakistan ties went through a rocky patch uh, in the 2011-2013 phase, but yeah. they came out of that. They were doing a little bit better improving. Things were improving. Uh, you know, I should preface that actually by saying that U.S.-Pakistan ties have been kind of rocky up and down for many decades. So to go through a rocky patch is not new. I mean, we went through challenges with Pakistan on the nuclear proliferation question. Uh, now our biggest challenges with Pakistan focus on its role in regional security and the problem of terrorist groups in that country. So, I mean, I have argued that the direction of U.S.-Pakistan ties, particularly on the question of terrorism, is one that uh, the Trump administration maintained continuity with where things had gone in the Obama administration. By the summer of 2016, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter was unable to certify uh, that Pakistan was taking sufficient actions against the Haqqani network. And so that ended up uh, resulting in the suspension of about a third of Pakistan's coalition support funding, which was a major component of the security assistance. You saw uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis Again, last summer, unable to make that same certification. So another one-third was withheld last summer. By January of this year, then, the Trump administration said, hey, we haven't seen sufficient progress on Pakistan taking action against these terrorist groups. So we're suspending all security assistance until we see more progress. And that's where we are today. If Khan indeed does become prime minister, I think I need to ask, is the office of prime minister or even any elected or all elected offices, is that the most important power center in Pakistan? 
It is now. It has been restored to being the most important office in Pakistan. There was a period where the office of the presidency had been elevated. Above well, I was the actually of thinking of yeah. I was actually thinking of the ISI or oh. non elected oh. entities. Oh, power you center. mean the, the secret offices? Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I thought you meant the the play between the roles of the president and the prime minister. Yeah. Well, of course, you're talking about the deep state. Yeah, but in Pakistan, it's real. In Pakistan, it's absolutely real. Pick up any article about politics in Pakistan and especially about Pakistan's foreign policy and you'll find references to the deep state. When people today, when you read the the press accounts of what's been happening in the elections, you'll also see references to the deep state and the establishment setting the environment for a PTI victory. And, And what people are referring to there is the idea that the military had chosen who they wanted wanted to see uh, uh, Victor uh, in this election and kind of help level the playing field so it would work out that way. That's what people are referring to. Oh, I should also note that um, the PMLN and the PPP, the Pakistan People's Party, had also uh, alleged uh, earlier on in earlier weeks of the campaign that members of their parties had been prevented from gathering in sort of the normal course of campaign rally. So when you've got certain parties that are allowed to gather and rally and certain other parties are facing impediments to doing so, it, it isn't a level playing field. So what will what might Khan's relationship be with the ISI um, reining them in, steering their efforts towards a less pro-Taliban stance? Uh, what can he do? From today's vantage point, and things can always change in life. But from today's vantage point, I think he's sort of widely expected not to rock the boat and to broadly Mm -hmm. uh, call for a kind of reduced American presence in the region, meaning in Afghanistan, uh, and questioning the the type – he is referred to uh, what he calls U.S.-Pakistan relations um, as sort of being one-way, unbalanced, not mutually beneficial. Um, Those are the kinds of of talking points, you know, that's part of – Looking for a way for the Pakistani military, for the Pakistani ISI to have greater influence over Afghanistan. So I would not expect to see him push back uh, against the ISI or against the military. Uh, if he does, he might end up finding himself in the same predicament that Nawaz Sharif did, namely that Nawaz Sharif was – you know, many years ago, widely regarded as a, a candidate who had been supported by the military. But over time, he pushed back against them and found himself in a civil military conflict. One of the big challenges of Pakistan throughout its existence. And we haven't talked about India. How could we not mm-hmm. have? You wrote the book on India or one of the books. Uh, I wrote we'll, one book. Yeah, one book on India. Book. I also wrote a book on Pakistan. So thank <laughs> but you. But does India do will, – will Modi and will India's relations with Khan, how do you think they'll go and, you know, judge them not as far as U.S.-England relations or two mm-hmm. great allies. Judge them mm-hmm. against the history of the relations of those two countries. So the history of the relations of these two countries, as I'm sure probably everybody listening knows, is, you know, a a, a terrible, terrible relationship. They fought four wars. Um, There's disputed territory. Right now, there is very limited dialogue between them. And I think, to be quite honest, this is not just an issue of India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi and his party. Um, I think you see this across the board in India. People in India feel like they have continually held out a hand of friendship to Pakistan um, 
and been rewarded with terrorist attacks. So the present stance of the Indian government is we will be happy to talk. We would like to see an end to terrorism first. Now, Imran Khan in his speech today mentioned India as the last of his foreign policy priorities. I didn't give you the list, did I? No. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he, he had a whole section of his speech today that was about foreign policy. So I'll just give you the quick list. The first was China. Mm-hmm. The second was Afghanistan. The third was the United States. The fourth was Iran. Fifth was Saudi Arabia. The sixth was India. Hmm. So what he said about India was that he wanted to make peace. He wanted there to be better relations between the two countries, that for every one step forward, he would take two steps forward, that he wanted an end to the blame game. I think that's a positive signal, but I think the real signal is going to be whether there's actually a reduction in these terrorist groups. And and that's something that I doubt he will be able to control. So, I mean, if you talk to Indian officials, they will say, great, but it's not really the civilian prime minister who's calling the shots on this all-important question. Alyssa Ayres is a senior fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, and her book on India is called Our Time Has Come, How India is Making Its Place in the World. Are you saying to yourself, wait, wasn't that just named to the Financial Times list of political books to read for 2018? Indeed it was. Thank you, Alyssa. Thank you. And now the spiel. A horrifying video has been making the rounds lately on African and African-centric websites. It shows what very much seems to be Cameroonian military forces gunning down unarmed women who are holding the hands of children at points in the video. The explanation is that the women were part of Boko Haram, but Cameroonian authorities have begun to offer up an increasingly popular excuse for misdeeds and growing in popularity in the international community. So we're going to play a few seconds of this uh, audio from the Cameroon Minister of Communications. The audio isn't great, but I'll come back and tell you what he said. Distinguished journalists, ladies and gentlemen, for some time now, a fake news story. So if you couldn't make it out clearly, he was blaming fake news. The phrase he used was fake news. Of course, it's the phrase he used. When the purported leader of the free world and head of the country that invented freedom of the press uses this as an excuse, you know it is going to inspire and empower leaders of the unfree world. Here's Bashir al-Assad of Syria. And we're living in a fake news era, as you know. Here's Venezuela's Nicolas Maduro. In Spanish, note the phrase, falsa mucho mentiras, many false lies. Mediático mundial. Y propagan muchas versiones falsas, muchas mentiras. Es lo que llaman el fast news ahora, ¿no? And also in there, I think he tried to say, literally in English, I think he tried to say fake news, as did Russian Foreign Ministry spokesperson Marina Zakharova. Here she was talking to the BBC about the alleged activities of Sergei Kislyak. And CNN accused him of being a Russian spy, uh, recruiting spy. Oh, well, it was, it was U.S. officials that Come accused on, him of stop, that. Come on, stop spreading lie and false um, news. I, this I, is a good advice for CNN. Filipino President Duterte frequently cites fake news. A Myanmar official used the phrase to wish out of existence an entire ethnicity, quote, there is no such thing as the Rohingya 
it is fake news. Now, the word erasure has maybe become a little overblown, but that right there is erasure. He just tried to erase the Rohingya with Donald Trump's catchphrase. Wow. And it's no wonder. There is such a thing as a permission structure, and these autocrats and their henchmen see how well the phrase works in the U.S., how it confuses the issue, how it throws sand in the eyes of the watchdogs, and they use it. And if you don't think the inspiration comes from President Trump, well, last year, Polish President Andrzej Duda, who had been battling the media in his own country, did a joint press conference with Trump. And in it, Trump lambasted fake news CNN. And then he turned to Duda and asked, do you know the phenomenon? And a nod indicated that he did. And later that day, there was this uh, semi-carfuffle. Duda's wife was videoed kind of whiffing on a first handshake attempt with Trump. And the Polish president wrote on Twitter, quote, contrary to some surprising reports, my wife did shake hands with Mr. and Mrs. Trump at POTUS after a great visit. Let's fight fake news. So he knew what his marching orders were. And we know who he took his cues from. Now, in that one instance of all those that I've listed, there really was some misreporting about the handshake, though I didn't see this at all show up in any reputable U.S. outlet. But in each of the other circumstances cited, the claim of fake news was actually a lie. Not the news, the claim. As Amnesty International reported, over 10,000 prisoners were killed in a Syrian state prison over the course of a decade. The U.S. State Department and other news organizations back up those claims. Duterte really does commit violations of civil rights all the time. Maduro has killed over 100 protesters, and inflation in his country is, you ready for this, a million percent. The IMF today came out with a projection that it could be a million percent. I guess they could be wrong. It could be only like 300,000 percent. In Venezuela, they're actually taking three zeros off the currency. How about taking one zero out of the presidential mansion? Know what I'm saying? <laughs> as far as Cameroon, while some, as you heard it, call it fake news, other Cameroonian officials have claimed that the soldiers in that video have been arrested. So which one is it? And that is exactly the question that the UN wants to answer. And to our credit, so does the U.S. State Department. Let me quote from a statement the Department of State put out. The United States is gravely concerned over the recent video. They go on to say, we call on the government of Cameroon to investigate thoroughly and transparently the events depicted in the video, make its findings public, and if Cameroonian military personnel were involved in this atrocity, hold them accountable. So there, the United States Diplomatic Corps is doing, or at least saying, the right thing, just as our president continues to constantly say the wrong thing. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to our Slate Plus listeners who help support the show. If you're not yet a member, learn more about the many real benefits of membership at slate.com slash gist plus pierre Bienname and daniel schrader produced the gist they're still waiting to see how imran khan does on the economy and human rights but if his policies are anything like his reverse swing yorker he'll be fine am i right people steve lichtai is executive producer of slate podcasts he doesn't experience google shot in freud but is worried about doing a web search where he finds his exact double who wishes to kill him which is the Google danger doppelganger phenomenon. The gist, we just want a leader who could speak not just to our anger, but also serve as our conscience. A Jiminy Cricketeer, if you will. Wait, this just in, you won't. 
Oomperadepperadupperoo, and thanks for listening.